For the News and Observer, I'm Lars Dolder, your host for this episode of Under the Dome for the week of Monday, July 3rd, 2023. I'm here with two of our politics reporters, Corey Dean and Avi Bajpai. Both of you have had very busy weeks with the Supreme Court of the United States keeping us busy. Uh, two landmark rulings in one week, both with pretty strong six to three voting uh, margins, both with direct North Carolina connections. Avi, let's start with the one that you were one of our primary reporters on. It came down Tuesday. You and our DC correspondent, Danielle Pataglia, covered the result in Moore v. Harper. Mm -hmm. Moore, named after Tim Moore. Yep. Um, and House Speaker. Uh, the House Speaker, yeah, here in North Carolina. What was the gist of the controversy for listeners who might not have been following that closely? Yeah, controversy might be an understatement. This was uh, probably one of the biggest cases this term. Um, long anticipated by parties on both sides. This was a really big elections case that um, people on both sides of this uh, issue were saying sort of forecasting could have big ramifications for elections down the line, notably the 2024 election. Um, this basically came out of a contentious ruling from the North Carolina Supreme Court um, last year, 2022 that um, was a was a pretty big loss for Republicans. They had drawn uh, a congressional map for North Carolina's 14 congressional districts that was tossed by the North Carolina Supreme Court. And they were upset with that ruling and they took the sort of legal underpinning of that to the US Supreme Court. Um, and that's what we had, as you said, a 6-3 pretty strong ruling this week. Um, Interestingly, unlike the other big case that we had this week, this was across ideological lines. Um, that was right. that was pretty notable. Republicans and Democrats together on the majority of things. Yeah, yeah, and and just to get at the heart of the issue, so it was kind of embodied in this theory, right? What was it called? Independent state legislature. Legislative. Yeah, All right. Uh, tell us about that. Why the Republican supermajority here in North Carolina? It wasn't a supermajority at the time, but why they? were adamant that was what well, they were power they should have. Yeah. And and why many feared that that was essentially undemocratic and could upend the way elections operate in this country. Yeah. So that theory uh, doesn't sort of start with this case. That's been around for some time, especially in conservative uh, circles, constitutional law circles. Um, but basically the thrust of it is this argument by the Republicans here who are basically saying, um, look, the, con the U.S. Constitution gives state lawmakers themselves, gives state lawmakers the authority to set the rules for how federal elections are run. Um, and they're basically saying state courts don't really have a role to play here. Um, and of course, the role the state court played here was monumental. They, they threw out the congressional map. So obviously, that's a big controversy. Um, and that's what this 6-3 ruling basically rejected. They said, uh, no, there's a long tradition in federal case law that uh, state courts have an appropriate role to play. Um, they get to oversee, they get to do oversight, legal oversight of um, the rules that, you know, state lawmakers put in place. Yeah, you're not kidding about long tradition. In his opinion, so Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the, the court's opinion, and he stepped through literally centuries of judicial precedent all the way back to James Madison. He mentioned Alexander Hamilton, the founding fathers, to say that state courts have the authority to check the legislature if it oversteps 
the authority within the bounds of the Constitution's election clause that you talked yeah. about. But what I thought was interesting is that Roberts specified that SCOTUS wouldn't make any attempts to indicate where that line yeah. would be. Yeah. So what does that mean for these issues moving forward now that the Supreme Court has issued a ruling, but they said we're not going to tell you at what point it's appropriate for state courts to intervene? Not yet, at least. Right. Yeah. That's that's uh, that's basically the big takeaway from this. Um, so obviously you have um, people on the left, Democrats, who were celebrating this ruling because it specifically, you know, um, did not entertain this independent state legislature theory in this case. Um, it's basically rejecting it in this ruling. But they they are clearly saying, well, Robert says one thing. He says, um, this doesn't mean that, you know, state courts have free reign. They do have some limit. Um, like you're saying, they declined in this case to specify a standard by which they might determine in the future where that line exists. But they are recognizing uh, state courts can't sort of um, invent reasons to sort of block these maps in the future. Um, so it's it's one of these situations where, you know, Democrats are celebrating this the day of. It obviously, in some to some degree, is a big victory for them. But you have people on the right who uh, are parsing the ruling and looking at what Justice Kavanaugh is saying in his current opinion, uh, for example, and saying, this, this, this is going to come up again in the future. Yeah. Interesting. It'll be fascinating to watch how it develops over time, like you said, because so far we've just had a couple of days with this and yeah. we haven't seen the ramifications long term. So that was Tuesday. Thursday came another major SCOTUS ruling, the opinion also written by Chief Justice Roberts. But um, to me, he wrote it with a significantly different tone. Uh, I think it was more visceral um, than the kind of the strict analysis that we saw in his opinion with Morby Harper. And I think that was because it's a more emotional topic in a lot of ways. This was whether affirmative action is permissible in the college admissions process. So 6-3, again, was the voting margin. The court rejected affirmative action. Corey, you've been following this for a long time. Give us some background and context on what this means. Yeah, so this case involves um, UNC Chapel Hill's admissions policies as well as those at Harvard. Um, they were two separate cases. Um, they were heard in oral arguments separately, but the uh, justices ended up issuing one opinion pretty much. There were um, several concurring opinions, some dissenting opinions. But um, the key takeaway is that the Supreme Court has ruled um, universities cannot consider race um, in college admissions, that that practice is unconstitutional, that it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. So um, it is, you know, obviously locally this case um, impacts UNC Chapel Hill. They, you know, um, this lawsuit started nearly a decade ago and they've seen it go all the way to the you know nation's highest court. But um, it will have sweeping impacts across the country, especially at selective colleges that, um, you know, considering race as, as one of several factors um, in a student's application for admission is is no longer allowed. Right. So we saw UNC, for example, who was part of this case, they issued a statement not long after it came out and they said they're still committed to diversity in their student body and, and looking to basically to achieve the same things, but without affirmative action as the vehicle by which they do that. So what does that mean? How, how might we see universities trying to accomplish the same things? Yeah, I, I think it's going to take some time to figure out. Obviously, we're recording this Thursday, and that's the day the opinion came out. But, um, you know, leading up to this, I talked to some experts um, 
I think one key takeaway is that in the majority opinion, um, Chief Justice Roberts appeared to make a distinction between considering race as a factor on a student's application um, and that the court ruled is not allowed, but colleges could still consider a student's experiences as they tied to race. So a student could still talk about in an application essay, for instance, um, life experiences that they may have had that are closely tied to their race um, and that considering those experiences, not the student's race itself, but how those experiences have impacted them um, is still allowed. So I think colleges will probably lean into that. Um, both UNC, or at least UNC I know, and, and several colleges, I mean, thousands of colleges around the country use the Common Application, um, which is just a, a platform, a forum for colleges to host their applications. And the Common App has said that you know, they will create resources to help students talk about their experiences in a way that comply with the law. So I think that colleges will hone in on. Um, there's also the idea of race neutral alternatives um, in admissions. Um, and that's the idea that there are alternative factors besides race that colleges could still use to achieve some diversity interests. So things like socioeconomic status, geography, where a student lives um, can be used um, not as proxies to race, but to um, still achieve a somewhat diverse student body. So I think college, we may see colleges emphasize those factors instead. Yeah. Lots more for us to unpack there. We'll look out for your reporting. I know there are many more stories to come. And um, with UNC right in our backyard, we'll be exploring this for months into the future. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll talk about some other news that might have gotten buried a little bit with all these SCOTUS rulings, rulings coming down, but still big news in North Carolina. And then we'll jump into our headlines. You're listening to Under the Dome. I'm NC Insider Editor Lars Dolder here with NNO Politics reporters Avi Bajpai and Corey Dean, who talked about the SCOTUS rulings that kept us busy for much of the week. But there has been other news that may have been buried um, with, with those landmark rulings coming down. One interesting one was that Insider broke news recently of a possible Democratic candidate for governor joining the race. Michael Morgan, who is a retiring state Supreme Court justice, he's uh, 67, he could run again, but his term wouldn't have completed. He decided he wasn't going to run, but he told us that he has been looking for another avenue of public service, and he thinks it's going to be running for governor. Um, it's a big deal in part because so far there's only been the one Democratic gubernatorial candidate, the Attorney General Josh Stein, who looked set to cruise through the primaries. Yeah, sort of considered more than a year out from the election the presumed, you know, front runner for the nomination. The, you know, all the coverage, all the sort of uh, uh, chatter among people who are watching this stuff. It's basically been presumed to be like a, you know, we're we're waiting for showdown between Josh Stein and possibly Mark Robinson. So right. pretty notable. Right. So on the other side, th there's been a pretty full slate of possible candidates. Um, there's Mark Robinson, Lieutenant Governor, who's who's widely believed to be the front runner. Um, we've had Mark Walker, former U.S. Congressman. There's who else we have? Dale Falwell. Dale yeah. Falwell, State Treasurer, yep, who's um, been working hard to amplify his policy because he doesn't have the money necessarily to back a campaign the way that Robinson does. We've had really diverse um, types of candidates on the Republican side with, of course, Robinson at the front runner. But there was just Stein um, running through the primary. So it'd be interesting now if Michael Morgan jumps into the race 
whether that complicates things on the Democratic side. He suggested that it would strengthen the Democratic platform, that Democratic voters have the right to have options the way that Republican voters would have in the primary. And he thinks that his candidacy would be a better um, competitor against someone like Mark Robinson, yeah. presumed to win. Strong, like basically suggesting, I think that Democrats would be putting a stronger foot forward right. by selecting him. Yeah. Um, the other reason I thought it was notable is because, uh, you know, Josh Stein is attorney general right now. A lot of sort of what he talks about while campaigning is being at the forefront of legal fights, legal disputes, really high profile um, issues to deal with um, as attorney general. So to have another person who has a sense of legal background, legal career, uh, you know, justice on the state Supreme Court, that kind of that makes things a little interesting. I think it sort of uh, complicates maybe a little bit um, uh, Josh Hunt sort of uh, presenting himself as like the foremost uh, yeah. choice right. you know, for, for Democrats. Because Morgan could easily adopt a platform that's pretty similar to yeah. Stein's in that respect because they come from that same world in, in the legal system. Yeah. AG, here's a Supreme Court justice um, who has actually been in four capacities, I think, which which he might be the only person that's done that over like 34 years in the North Carolina judicial, judicial system. So he has the resume. Um, and, and, the just, and just one other thing to, to add, um, the reason I think the sort of, you know, um, which candidate has legal experience uh, experience with these legal fights is important is because so many legal issues are at the front of this campaign um, in our politics right now here in North Carolina, whether it's on uh, an abortion fight, which is still ongoing um, right now in federal court as, as we're talking, but um, various ongoing redistricting challenges, disputes, um, and a lot of other issues too, voter ID, for example. So to have a justice who has ruled on these cases come and fight uh, Stein for the nomination, that'd be uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, let's jump into our headliners of the week. Uh, we have three strong ones I'm excited about. Uh, let's start with you, Avi, while we're in in the politics world of things and we're talking about... Um, I don't know, legalese and, and people's yeah, finesse their way through political fights. Yeah, parliamentary yeah. procedure and such. Yeah. An interesting, an interesting, what do you call it? Maneuver. Maneuver, that's yeah. good, yeah. by a senator this week respecting marijuana. Yeah, so Senator Bill Rabin um, is uh, one of the most powerful senators to North Carolina. He's the, the chair of the rules committee. Um, he gets to decide which bills move forward in, in the Senate, go to the Senate floor. He is one of the biggest proponents, maybe the main proponent of med legalizing medical marijuana. Um, the Senate passed that bill back in March by a strong bipartisan margin, sent it to the House, and it, it has stalled in the House since then. It's been in the House Rules Committee since early March. Um, and this week, it seems, Senator Rabin uh, was a little fed up with that stalemate. So uh, it did something very interesting. He um, took a bill that the House sent over that was a priority of several top house lawmakers. Um, it was being considered by the Senate, and he attached a tidy little amendment that said, this bill will only go into effect if the medical marijuana bill also goes into effect. It's basically setting the bill back to the House with a clear message saying, if you want this bill, you need to pass our bill. Um, so very interesting developments in the last couple of weeks of uh, session. Yeah, part of the funniest 
the one of the funniest parts of all that to me, I think, was on Twitter afterward. The the reaction from many people, including Democratic senators, I think Natalie Murdoch yeah. t- tweeted out like "boss moves" from, it, yeah. <laughs> from from Bill Raven. And it's interesting because obviously there's contention between the parties on the Senate floor, but there's also contention between the chambers. And we've talked about that in this podcast. Um, at a high level, you see Democrats versus Republicans, but in a supermajority legislature, the the intra-party dynamics are fascinating yeah. between Republican leadership in the Senate and Republican leadership in the House. And we see that kind of coming to a head in a funny way with a move like this where they have their respective priorities and they're going to leverage what they've got um, over the other chamber to make sure that they'll get their thing. I, I would just say really quickly, I don't know if the House sees it as funny oh. as, as <laughs> uh, you know, as, as funny as the Senate does. So yeah. um, to the speaker more kind of indicating to, to us this week that there's still not a consensus in the Republican caucus, House Republican caucus, over whether or not to go forward with this. So yeah. we'll see if this move helps or hurts. Right. Cause. right. Yeah, I guess it could backfire. We'll yeah. see. Um, I'll do mine next because yours is the most fun, Corey, so yeah. I'll save that a lot. <laughs> but I'm going to keep my headliner in um, in SCOTUS land with another ruling that came down that isn't directly North Carolina related, so we haven't covered it ourselves. But Gerald Groff versus the Postmaster General, essentially versus USPS, he was an employee there. And um, because of religious beliefs, he didn't want to work on Sunday. And the Postal Service said that he had to or he'd lose his job. Um, and so I went all the way up to the Supreme Court with him saying that it was within his rights, uh, part of his religious beliefs, that he could have this. And what's interesting, I think, is that we've seen these 6-3 opinions in the two cases we talked about, which is still pretty strong. But here we have a unanimous opinion from the court, conservatives and, and Democrats on the same side, all ruling in Groff's favor. So it's a big deal from some early analysis I've read because uh, labor laws like that have often favored the employer, and this sort of sets a precedent that's trending away from that, where employees' individual rights are carrying more weight. Here, this has come down from the Supreme Court, and so there are lots of ways that you can imagine that people would uh, apply this precedent mm-hmm. in their work lives moving forward. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting, but let's move on to yours, Corey. <laughs> The best of the bunch. Yeah, so I cover higher education, and um, this season on The Bachelorette, a UNC PhD student is one of the contestants vying for love. So um, it premiered this past Monday. So this podcast comes out on Monday. So listen to the podcast in the morning and watch Xavier on Bachelorette at night. Um, yeah, that's fun. I'm not covering it directly. We've left that to um, my former editor um, and our TV and media reporter, Brooke Kane. But um, yeah, that's fun. I think, you know, rooting for him and hope that it, it works out for him. How does one get on the Bachelorette? What What is that process like? I think there's an audition process. Probably you send in like a video audition and, and maybe do some camera tests. I'm not sure. But you have to you have to apply. I don't, I don't think if you're a UNC PhD candidate, so like this is a great way to make some extra money. I don't know that you get paid. Okay, I don't to, know. We'll need to look into that <laughs> yeah, for more reports in the future. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, that'll do it for us for this week. I'm Lars Dolder with the NC Insider and the News and Observer. Thank you for listening. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com slash subscribe. 
Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com newsletters. Thanks for listening.